Okay, why don't we get started then in our, uh, on our trip uh, through uh, the United States uh, in the uh, 1700s and especially in the 1800s. Now, on April 30th, 1789, in New York City, uh, George Washington, the hero of the country, was inaugurated the first president of the United States, inaugurating also a experiment in representative democracy that was unprecedented in modern times. In modern history, representative government democracy had never worked, never even really been attempted in modern history. And when I'm talking about modern history, I'm saying, you know, beyond the Greeks, beyond Rome, modern history. And Europe, especially Great Britain, still smarting from its defeat by the Americans during the Revolutionary War, believed that this experiment would fail, hoped that this experiment would fail. And they had good reason to believe that this experiment, unprecedented in democracy, would fail. There was good reason for this. Because America was a weak nation in 1789. It was weak militarily. Great Britain ruled the seas. Great Britain impressed sailors from the United States into the British Navy. And by why, but what, why, what I mean by impressment is, uh, uh, in a sense, almost like a mugging, basically. Uh, British ships would stop American ships on the high seas uh, and would take American sailors off those ships and put them into the Royal Navy. And there was very little the United States could do about it, being as weak as it was militarily. Despite the 1783 treaty, which ended the Revolutionary War and assured America its political independence, uh, uh, and despite the fact that this treaty ceded to the United States all the land that went to the Mississippi, Britain refused to pull their troops out, or at least pull their troops out completely. Uh, they are in what we now call the Midwest, where uh, they stirred up Indian revolts against the United States and generally caused trouble. So, America was weak militarily and did not control its own territory. The new nation in 1789 was also very weak economically. Uh, despite its political independence, it was still in a colonial relationship to Great Britain with the remnants of what we know as mercantilism still in place. Now, mercantilism, which is spelled M-E-R-C-A-N-T-I-L-I-S-M, mercantilism, uh, is a system in which the parent company or country or uh, the controlling country will ship manufactured goods to, let's say, its colony, and in return from its colony will get raw materials. Now, despite the fact that the United States was an independent nation in 1789, there is still effectively a mercantilist relationship with Great Britain, where the United States ships raw materials, as a colony would, to the mother country, or the, in this case the ex-mother country, uh, 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 Great Britain, in return for the manufactured goods that it cannot produce itself, almost in a sort of a closed system. So the United States, 
as a country reliant on foreign trade, and specifically on uh, British trade, uh, uh, is not economically independent and not economically self-sufficient. Uh, this lack of economic self-sufficiency, as we will see, would pull the United States into the War of 1812 with Great Britain. And uh, despite its nominal independence, America was also a weak political entity. The ratification of the Constitution, which was drafted in 1787, was finally completed in 1790 when the last of the 13 states to ratify it, Rhode Island did ratify, but the Constitution was almost, uh, uh, almost rejected. Uh, by the states. It was almost defeated, uh, especially in New York, Virginia, and Massachusetts, uh, three of the largest and most powerful states. And the Constitution was only ratified by all 13 states by 1790 uh, after supporters of the Constitution promised the Bill of Rights, which was ratified in 1791. The Bill of Rights, which as we know is the first ten amendments to the Constitution, uh, guaranteed individual rights from attack by the central or federal government. And we're familiar with those rights, or most of them. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, the right to a speedy trial, and to trial by jury. But most important to the states was the Tenth Amendment, to the, to the Constitution, the 10th article of the Bill of Rights. And it's an amendment that we don't hear all that much about today, but was very important at the time. And the 10th Amendment to the Constitution said that powers not specifically given to the federal government by the Constitution are reserved to the individual states. And this amendment is an indication of the suspicion that the individual states had for the new federal government, and by extension, the new American nation. States, the individual states, were jealous of their sovereignty, un unwilling to commit wholeheartedly uh, uh, to the new United States. And so the United States in 1789 was really a shaky alliance of individual states acting like sovereign nations often without a strong central power. Now, into this delicate and precarious situation stepped the three most important uh, political forces in the early American Republic. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson. And I'll take them up in order. Now, George Washington, of course, you know about. Uh, he is the man as, who, as the, uh, uh, as the general for the colonial forces uh, and the new American national forces, won the Revolutionary War uh, against great odds. Uh, 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 Washington, uh, uh, among many other great things, was a great general. And a great general does more with less. And certainly very few generals have done more with less. Uh, uh, than George Washington did uh, uh, as gen general of the Continental Army uh, during the Revolutionary War. So he is the great hero of the Revolutionary War. Uh, but he is not someone who is interested in political office, uh, in power. 
Often, when a great military leader emerges, uh, he then seizes political control. But that wasn't George Washington. In 1783, after the victory of the American forces was secured, he goes back to his home in Mount Vernon. Who's seen Mount Vernon? Has anybody ever seen Mount Vernon? It's nice. It's really, really a nice place. Uh, uh, near Washington, D.C., or what would become Washington, D.C., and he attempts to retire. But he is called out of retirement in 1787 to preside over the Constitutional Convention, the convention that ratified, that, 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 that promulgated, that wrote and passed the Constitution of the United States that was eventually ratified by the 13 states. Uh, so he's called out of retirement uh, to do that as the only man who had the respect of everyone. Uh, 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 despite their disagreements, the only one who could truly preside over the Constitutional Convention. And then, once again, he attempts to retire. But again, he is called back uh, now by the nation as a whole to become the nation's first president. He is the only president to be elected unanimously, and he is in 1788. Now, Washington serves as president between 1789 and 1797. He could have even had a third term had he wanted to, uh, but he then retired permanently uh, uh, to Mount Vernon where he died in 1799. And Washington's main contribution as president uh, uh, he's not a particularly innovative uh, president, uh, uh, was really as a precedent setter. He could have had the trappings of a king. He could have had the trappings of a monarch. He could have destroyed democratic government right then and there, but he refused to do so. Uh, uh, he was a high-born man. Uh, uh, he was from an elite background. Uh, he behaved that way, but he was still at heart a Democrat, small d, Democrat, someone who believed in the democratic process and not a tyrant or a dictator. Uh, and just the fact that he refused to be a dictator uh, uh, and set the precedent for democratic government and for peaceful transfers of power between presidents after elections makes him uh, one of our top two or three presidents right there, an essential president for a new nation. Now, Washington hated political parties. Uh, he had seen what they had done in other countries, uh, 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 for example, Great Britain, where there was a very, very uh, 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 divisive uh, party system. And he wanted to avoid them in the United States, but it perhaps is unavoidable. And a group began to coalesce around President Washington, uh, basically a political party, which we know as the Federalists. Uh, uh, and uh, the Federalist Party is really the first major American political party. Now, Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, was one of the leading lights of this Federal Party uh, uh, and was really, I would say, the, the ideas man behind the Federalist Party, as we will see. Now, if Washington's background was what we might call blue blood. Alexander Hamilton was from the other side of the tracks. He wasn't even born in uh, what became the United States. He was actually from the West Indies, the island of Nevis in the West Indies. Uh, he, was the he was an illegitimate child and came to the United States at a very young age, essentially on his own, as so many immigrants have done after him to make his way and make his fortune. 
He rose very quickly. Uh, he went to what is now Columbia University uh, in, in New York. Uh, he was George Washington's military aide uh, uh, during the uh, Revolutionary War, so uh, he definitely had military experience. And Hamilton is an interesting character because although he has a tremendous effect on politics, he never runs for political office himself. He's always behind the scenes almost as a, as a fixer, uh, uh, trying to impose his vision for the new United States. And what is Hamilton's vision? Well, politically, Hamilton, and this is the ideology of the Federalist Party that, uh, that he has so much to do with, uh, uh, politically, Hamilton believed in a strong central government. This was really one of his main tenets. He believed that there had to be a powerful federal government. Uh, uh, he was a nationalist, if you will, someone who believed that the United States of America as an entity was much more important than any individual state. He believed in a nation with a common identity, and a strong federal government to Hamilton was essential to this. Now, Hamilton wasn't all that much of a Democrat, again, small d. Uh, he was someone who believed in hierarchy, someone who believed in rule uh, by, the, uh, by the best people, the smartest people, which is ironic because he comes from the bottom of the social hierarchy himself. And as someone who is more interested in hierarchy than egalitarianism, uh, it's not surprising that in the great battle of the 1790s uh, and early 1800s between a revolutionary France and a more conservative and still monarchist Great Britain, Hamilton and many of the Federalists them also uh, supported Great Britain. Uh, uh, because uh, uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were made uncomfortable by the radical egalitarianism and the violence of the French Revolution. They were suspicious of it. So uh, they were more oriented towards Great Britain uh, than they were France and that rivalry between Great Britain and France which took place in the 1790s and uh, 18, early 1800s. And finally, Hamilton is an urbanist. He believes that cities are the future of the nation, not farms, but cities. And going along with that, uh, Hamilton's ideas in economics. Hamilton believed in industry and commerce to build the nation. The more, the better. He wanted to encourage industry and encourage business. He liked businessmen. He was a capitalist, an unabashed capitalist. Hamilton's view of equality reflects that. Remember, we talked about uh, equality last time. For Hamilton, people should have an equal opportunity to then become unequal. Gross disparities of wealth did not bother him all that much. Hamilton's view of liberty also goes along with this, or freedom. Government should help the economy grow by intervening in the economy and not staying out of the economy. And thus, to be more specific about this, uh, Hamilton, as the Secretary of the Treasury, and he was Washington's Secretary of the Treasury uh, throughout much of his administration, Hamilton favored a national bank, meaning the federal government would control the currency and control the money supply and control the, the lending apparatus. To some extent, if uh, the bailout plan ever gets uh, passed, uh, we will have the equivalent of a national bank. Hamilton also believed in higher federal taxes uh, to raise money for the federal government, which he hoped would be a strong one. 
uh, uh, Hamilton favored taxes on alcohol, which precipitated the 1794 Whiskey Rebellion that we will be talking about a little later. Hamilton also believed in the assumption of state debts by the federal government. Now, what did this have? I mean, what effect did this have? Well, this affected commercial interests and speculators because what they had done, these commercial interests, that, that were more or less allies of Alexander Hamilton, they bought state debts for pennies on the dollar, when it looked like the states were not going to be able to pay their debts, you know, you have uh, uh, basically you all you, you make a uh, you, you if you buy a bond, for example, you're making a loan to uh, the state government or to the federal government or some government a entity, uh, and they will pay you back. Well, the states used these bonds to finance uh, uh, the military expenditures which they had to make during the Revolutionary War. But by 1790, it looked like these states were not going to be able to pay it back. And so these notes, these bonds, were worthless. Well, commercial speculators bought these notes. You know, they'll say, okay, this, this note is worth a dollar. We'll give you 20 cents on it. Uh, so, you, you know, the person who's holding the note figures he's not going to be paid anyway. He might as well get 20 cents out of it. Okay, now these commercial speculators uh, uh, have these notes. And Hamilton wants the federal government to assume the state debts and pay the state debts, making these people quite wealthy. In other words, they paid 20 cents for something that they were going to uh, get a dollar for. Now, this assumption, this buying up, by the federal government of all these state debts, paying the state debts, uh, which Hamilton thought was a good thing, helped commercial interests by, in turn, issuing government, federal government securities now uh, 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 to these commercial interests, making uh, them almost like partners with the federal government. Once again, there seems to be some parallel to, uh, you know, to, to, this, to this bailout plan. The federal government would be borrowing from banks and commercial interests to pay off these state debts. In other words, there'd be this long chain of debt, starting with the individual uh, uh, lender, an individual average person who lends money to his state government who during during the Revolutionary War, who sees by 1790 that it's not going to be paid back, who sells that note that debt to a commercial speculator for 20 cents or pennies on the dollar. Uh, uh, the commercial speculator then sees the federal government say, we are going to pay these debts uh, in full, making them a lot of money, but still the federal government needs to borrow money and they borrow money from the same commercial interests whose debts they are going to, who, who are holding these debts. So it's this long chain of debt, but what happens is the people left in the end with the money are commercial interests, and Hamilton thinks that this is uh, a good idea. Now, Hamilton's vision for the United States uh, was diametrically opposed to that of his great rival during the 1790s and early 1800s, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and also his Federalist Party, its philosophy was diametrically opposed to the philosophy of the rival party that coalesced not around Washington and Hamilton as the Federalists did, but around Jefferson and James Madison, known as the Democratic-Republican Party. Now, 
Thomas Jefferson, again, is somebody who we are reasonably familiar with. Uh, he is George Washington's Secretary of State throughout much of Washington's presidency, meaning he's sitting on the opposite side of the table as Alexander Hamilton. And between 1797 and 1801, uh, Jefferson is John Adams, the second president of the United States, his vice president. And we know about Jefferson. He is uh, from a similar background as George Washington, uh, uh, a planter, uh, uh, a slaveholder, uh, uh, as we know, uh, the author, the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, the great liberating document of, uh, of modern history. And of course, we all know of the great paradox of the man who writes the Declaration of Independence, holding slaves throughout his entire life. Now, Jefferson's politics and the politics of his party, the Democratic-Republican Party, uh, as I said, were diametrically opposed to the policies and politics of, uh, of Hamilton and the Federalists. Jefferson believed in a weak central government, a smaller central government, basically leaving people alone, a strict construction of the Constitution. In other words, Jefferson was a Tenth Amendment guy. Uh, he believed very, very deeply that, uh, 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 that any powers not specifically given to the federal government by the Constitution were reserved to the states. Jefferson was an egalitarian, uh, 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 at least when it came to white males, uh, uh, as befitting the author of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he believed in the people, and the right of the people to not have uh, 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 their rights taken away by despots. Now, remember, this is the tradition of the American Revolution. If you read the Declaration of Independence, uh, you will see first the famous words, all men are created equal. Uh, but if you read farther into the document, you see a long list of despotic, tyrannical acts by the British crown. Uh, against the people, against de democratic rule. And that's what scares Thomas Jefferson. That's what scares him, that a despot is going to come back and take the rights of the people away. Hamilton has a different fear. As he looks to the French Revolution, which in the 1700s is veering into anarchy and violence uh, and mass, mass, you know, mass murder, basically, uh, the reign of terror, Hamilton is worried that the people will take on too much power and become despotic themselves. So many times you can define uh, uh, political figures, historical figures, by just asking the question, what were they afraid of? What were they afraid of? Hamilton is afraid of the tyranny of the people, so to speak, the anarchy of the people. Jefferson is, is, is afraid of the tyranny of the ruler, the tyranny of the crown, the tyranny of the king. And that's what motivates him. And as you might imagine, with this philosophy, uh, when it came to the great rivalry between France and Great Britain in the 1790s, uh, 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 Jefferson, while decrying the excesses of the French Revolution, the reign of terror, uh, generally favors France over Great Britain. He views their revolution uh, in terms of the American Revolution as a great democratic uh, revolution. Jefferson also, in contrast to Hamilton, is an anti-urbanist. He is suspicious of cities. He sees cities as centers of greed and vice and violence and privilege. Now, economically, again, in contrast to Hamilton, Jefferson believes in agriculture, in, the, in a community of small, 
to middling farmers uh, uh, and artisans, uh, uh, basically living in small towns, living in villages. Uh, uh, he's very suspicious of commercialism or any kind of large-scale capitalism. Jefferson's suspicious of manufacturing interests. He basically is content with what I described earlier as the mercantilism of, uh, or the mercantilist relationship uh, of the United States and Great Britain. Uh, uh, Jefferson is certainly uh, content to have the United States ship raw materials as a colonial uh, nation would uh, uh, to a more industrialized nation, in this case Great Britain or even France, uh, in exchange for manufactured goods. Because he felt that the United States could preserve its independence that way, that it wouldn't get sucked into this vortex of commercialism and capitalism. Going along with this is Jefferson's view of equality, again, diametrically opposed to that of Hamilton, a broad-based equality of condition with neither extremes of great wealth or great poverty. Jefferson's view of liberty goes along with this. A society of independent individuals free from outside restraint. And when Jefferson thinks of what outside restraint is, he thinks of the federal government, which he is very suspicious of. So in many ways, Jefferson and Hamilton are literally polar opposites with completely diametrically opposed views of what this new United States should look like. And Jefferson's view, in fact, I've always felt can be summed up in one word. And that word is republicanism. Now be careful. Republicanism is not the Republican Party. It is not even the Democratic Republican Party. It is a small r word. Not a capital R, a small r word. In fact, republicanism is not an institution or an organization, but a philosophy. It's a way to be, a way to live. Now, to illustrate, republicanism in an individual, if we would describe an individual as a republican individual, in a man, a republican individual is independent. He's not relying on anybody else for a living to, for support. He's, he's self-sustaining, he's self-supporting. He's a citizen. A Republican individual lives as the member of a community and voluntarily helps other members of that community without the government forcing him to do so. He is virtuous. A Republican individual described as being virtuous, that's the best thing you can say about someone uh, in, in, you know, in the philosophy of Republicanism. It's the highest compliment. It means he puts his personal interest aside for the good of the greater community. And a Republican is also egalitarianism. He's not an aristocrat. He won't act like an aristocrat. He never puts himself above any other member of his community, no matter what he has accomplished. And Thomas Jefferson is a good example of this. Uh, uh, he always uh, 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 tried to dress down to the occasion, so to speak. Uh, uh, Washington was painted in all his finery, but not Jefferson. And in fact, in the textbook, I forget which page it's on, but you've read it for today, there is a famous uh, 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 painting of Jefferson in a coat with a fur collar 
uh, which at the time was considered to be quite plain. Uh, it might not be viewed as plain today, but in those days it was viewed, you know, it's not silk, it's just a fur collar, you know, made from an animal skin. Uh, 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 you know, he's, he's, he's painted in this coat, uh, uh, this fur coat, uh, uh, which denotes egalitarianism and not, not, not presumption of heirs or, or being better than anyone else. You know, when Jefferson was about to be inaugurated as the President of the United States in March uh, uh, 1801, uh, he was living in a boarding house in Washington before assuming the office. And he went downstairs at his boarding house on the morning of March 4th, 1801, the day he was going to be inaugurated, and he ate breakfast with everybody else. Uh, then he went off to be inaugurated uh, as the President. In other words, the idea of republicanism is you don't big-time anybody. There's no entourage, basically. You don't big-time anybody. Now, by Thomas Jefferson's definition, only a farmer, or at most a common artisan, you know, someone who made things with his hands, could be a true Republican, small r. Because no one who didn't work with his hands uh, could be truly egalitarian. So Jefferson's idea of egalitarian republicanism, his idea of what constituted a republican, uh, uh, excluded someone who was a businessman, excluded someone who was a merchant, or a banker, or even worse, a speculator, the kind of people that uh, Alexander Hamilton liked. Now, this idea of republicanism is not only central to Thomas Jefferson's thought, but it reappears again and again during the 19th century uh, in America in different guises. Uh, Andrew Jackson, to some extent, was a Republican, even though he was a Democrat. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was actually in the Republican Party, also had elements of Republicanism in him. Uh, even, uh, as, we'll as we'll see uh, at the very end of this course, the socialist labor leader Eugene V. Debs, there's a report uh, scheduled on him, uh, believed in republicanism. And republicanism is a crucial concept, I think, for understanding American history in the 19th century. So we'll be returning to it. Now, Jefferson and Hamilton's clashing views on liberty and equality and what role the federal government should play in American life uh, dominated the events of the 1790s and the early 1800s. Now, there are many examples of this in the textbook, but uh, I'm just going to mention a few uh, to comment on. The first is the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Hamilton uh, passed a whiskey tax, or a tax on whiskey, to uh, raise money for the federal government. And farmers in western Pennsylvania, in the Pittsburgh area, which was sort of the wilderness at the time, uh, refused to pay. Uh, 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 you know, this whiskey tax had overtones of the Stamp Act taxes and the tea taxes uh, uh, that were imposed by the British on the colonies before the American Revolution and which largely precipitated the American Revolution. Remember, one is always fighting the last war, so to speak. Uh, uh, when we look uh, at our own situations politically, we're always thinking about situations that took place 20, 30, 40 years before uh, uh, that perhaps were traumatic, uh, and we analogize to them. So the farmers of western Pennsylvania see this whiskey tax as another stamp tax, as another uh, example of, of tyranny, not this time by the British Crown, but now by the United States central government. Now, Jefferson 
in contrast with Hamilton, while he doesn't openly support an open rebellion, uh, generally sympathizes with its aims, uh, this anti-tax aims. Uh, uh, in the end, George Washington marched federal troops to western Pennsylvania to quell the rebellion and establish the right of federal taxation, a victory for centralized power. So here, this is a victory for Alexander Hamilton and a defeat for Thomas Jefferson. Then there were the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Now, in 1797, John Adams, who was also a Federalist, uh, succeeded George Washington as the second president of the United States. Uh, Adams, who had an extremely thin skin, and I don't know how many people saw the miniseries on, uh, on John Adams, okay? Uh, a great man, but uh, you know, rather hypersensitive to criticism. Uh, 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 Adams and his Federalist Party passed laws in 1798, uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which effectively made it uh, uh, illegal to openly criticize the President of the United States, in other words, John Adams. Uh, the bills uh, actually uh, left out the Vice President of the United States, uh, who was Thomas Jefferson. So it deliberately, they deliberately uh, uh, didn't mention the Vice President. But if you criticize the President, you were, you were guilty of sedition. Now, for Jefferson, and also for James Madison, who was really the architect of the American Constitution, this smacked of the kind of tyranny uh, uh, that they had experienced under George III uh, of Great Britain. And they protested this through what were known as the Virginia and Kentucky Resolves. The Virginia and Kentucky Resolves said that the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional uh, abrogations by the federal government of state power, citing that Tenth Amendment again. The results also argued that the United States Constitution wasn't an inviolate contract that could never be broken, but a compact between sovereign states who could nullify federal law, like the Alien and Sedition Acts, or, by implication, even leave the Union. Now, while the Alien and Sedition Acts were eventually repealed, uh, and the, uh, 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 that, you know, that specific issue went away, the question of the power of the central government over the states, the relationship between the central government and the various states, that issue endured and, 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 and would reappear over and over again during the first two-thirds of the 19th century. It appeared, as we will see, during the 1830s, during the nullification crisis, when the state of South Carolina tried to nullify a federal law, uh, uh, tariff law, uh, and certainly appeared during the 1850s and 1860s, uh, uh, during the arguments over slavery and, of course, the secession crisis. And aside from the issue of slavery itself, the question of the rights of the states against the rights of the federal government. The states' rights against federal rights, federal power. Uh, this issue, as played out initially by the Federalists and Alexander Hamilton and the Democratic Republicans of Jefferson and uh, James Madison, uh, uh, that this question, I think, aside from slavery, was the most important question of the first half, or really the first two-thirds of the 19th century. Uh, in America. It would be resolved violently by the Civil War. 
And finally, a third example of the clashing views of, uh, uh, of Hamilton and Jefferson, of the Federalists and of the Democratic Republicans, on the issue of federal power versus state power, uh, concerned the Supreme Court, the new Supreme Court, uh, and the issue of what we called the judicial review. Now, in 1800, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson defeated Adams uh, for the presidency and became our third president in 1801. As time ran out on his administration in February and March 1801, uh, uh, John Adams appointed uh, the Federalist John Marshall the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Now, we usually think of uh, Virginia as being uh, Jefferson, Madison, Democratic Republicans, but John Marshall is from Virginia, but he's a Federalist. Uh, uh, he's an enemy, in fact, of Thomas Jefferson, which is one of the reasons that uh, John Adams appointed him the Chief Justice. Uh, and not surprisingly, uh, unlike Madison and Jefferson, who are from the country, I don't know if you've ever, has anyone ever seen Monticello? Okay. It's a beautiful place. You know you're out in the country. Uh, uh, well, uh, Madison is even farther out in the country. He's not even really near, near a town. Uh, Monticello is near Char Charlottesville, where the University of Virginia is. Uh, well, unlike that, uh, uh, those two, uh, Marshall's from a city. He's from, he's from Richmond, uh, uh, which is still a reasonably large city, but at the time, one of the largest cities in the United States. So he has a federalist uh, outlook. Now, by 1801 after March 1801. Adams is out of office, Jefferson is in office, and the Democratic Republicans, and not the Federalists, control Congress. So what they try to do is to get rid of, or at least emasculate, the Supreme Court and John Marshall by repealing the Judiciary Act of 1801, uh, under which uh, uh, Marshall was appointed, and under which the Supreme Court was structured. But in the famous case of Marbury versus Madison, uh, M-A-R-B-U-R-Y, Marbury versus Madison in 1803, the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the Federalist, John Marshall, upheld the power of the Supreme Court to be the sole judge of what the Constitution means. Not the President, not the Congress, the Supreme Court will be the arbiter and be the judge of what the Constitution means, meaning the idea of judicial review of the laws of Congress, including the ability to hold a law of Congress unconstitutional. Now, if you look at the Constitution as it reads today, as it read then, it doesn't say that the Supreme Court has this power. It doesn't specifically say that the Constitution shall be uh, interpreted by the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court is the only and the final interpreter of what the laws mean and what the Constitution means, and it does have the power to hold a law that has been passed duly by Congress unconstitutional. It doesn't say that in the Constitution, which is why Marbury versus Madison is such an important case, because John Marshall basically uh, sees a power vacuum and he goes into it. He takes for the Supreme Court, and of course for himself, the power to hold laws unconstitutional, the power to interpret the Constitution, and that sets the precedent, and it's never really been challenged even up to now. Now, this idea of judicial review, as in the case of the Whiskey Rebellion that I talked about a moment ago, uh, is another victory for the federal government, for strong federal power. And, once again, a defeat 
for Thomas Jefferson's vision uh, of a, uh, a small, weak central government that basically left people alone. And these are just a few illustrations of the ongoing battle over the extent of federal power uh, that these two great rivals, Hamilton and Jefferson, began and that would be continued by their heirs in the 19th century and even into the 20th and 21st century. If you ask Ronald Reagan uh, during the 1980s when he was president about his political heroes, for example, uh, uh, he would say quite possibly Thomas Jefferson of all people because he believed in a smaller central government. Uh, so this is an argument that has never really gone away, uh, the extent of the power of the federal government. And if you want to know where it started, it started here with Hamilton and Jefferson. Now, in 1800, as I mentioned, uh, Thomas Jefferson was elected president in a very controversial election, uh, uh, which led to constitutional changes. Uh, uh, in the 1800 election, uh, the way it worked is that the, uh, uh, the, the candidate with the most votes in the Electoral College was elected president, and the runner-up became the vice president. But this system did not anticipate t ticket voting and party voting. So what happened in 1800 is that uh, Thomas Jefferson and his running mate for vice president, Aaron Burr, both got the same amount of electoral votes because everybody voted a straight party ticket. Uh, since they were tied, it ended up going into the House of Representatives, and Burr, the vice president, was almost elected president by disgruntled Federalists who hated Jefferson so much they wanted anybody but him. So uh, there was almost a complete travesty of, uh, of, 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 the, uh, of the electoral system uh, in that election. And Quite, quite soon after that, the, uh, uh, the Constitution was amended, the Twelfth Amendment, uh, uh, to prevent that from happening in the future by, by basically voting, uh, bo voting for the president and the vice president as a ticket. Uh, before that, you could be uh, a president and vice president of different parties. Uh, uh, in the 1796 election, uh, Adams, the Federalist, won, uh, uh, and, and Jefferson, the Democratic-Republican, uh, who ran against him and lost, but did come up with the second amount of vote, uh, uh, number of votes, became the vice president. So the system where you could have a president and vice president from different parties uh, uh, was removed, this possibility, by the 12th Amendment. Uh, incidentally, this 1800 election eventually led to the death of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton, although a Federalist and a bitter rival of Thomas Jefferson, at least respected him as a person, which he did not respect Aaron Burr, who was a very, very slimy, slippery character uh, with very, very few scruples. So uh, Hamilton worked against Burr uh, uh, and worked, uh, ironically, for Jefferson to get him elected in 1800, something Burr did not forget. Uh, uh, and in 1804, uh, after uh, uh, more, more unpleasantness between the two, uh, uh, Burr challenged Hamilton to a duel. Uh, uh, unwisely, Hamilton accepted. They did that kind of stuff in those days. Uh, they couldn't, they were both in New York, uh, uh, but they couldn't duel in New York because it was illegal in New York. So they just went to the place where everything is legal, New Jersey, uh, uh, had their duel and, uh, and, and Hamilton was killed. So uh, uh, this, was, uh, uh, this was the upshot also of the election of 1800. But in any case, uh, in March 1801, Thomas Jefferson is the new president. And he sets out to impose his vision of America uh, as an agrarian republic with room for thousands and even millions of independent farmers. And central to this vision is the Louisiana Purchase. Now, Louisiana, which is not just the state of Louisiana, but a vast territory that uh, includes Louisiana and many, many other future states, 
uh, 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 Arkansas, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, what's now Colorado, Oregon, uh, 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 you know, tr- stretching all the way out to the Pacific Coast, even you know, including part of, of, of California. This huge territory, uh, which starts with New Orleans, uh, uh, which is, of course, part of Louisiana, that will give the United States a huge geographic boost. It will almost, uh, it will over double the size of its territory. So the Louisiana Purchase is crucial because of all this land to Jefferson's vision. Now, in 1803, uh, France owned this Louisiana territory, but it was fighting with Great Britain, as it had been on and off for about another yeah, decade. Uh, uh, it had tried to become a colonial power in the, uh, in, 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 in the Western Hemisphere, but it had basically failed. The, uh, uh, the, the British had thrown them out of Canada. They were about to be thrown out of Haiti. Uh, uh, and also, the French government was strapped for cash. Napoleon, the, uh, the soon-to-be emperor of France, needed cash. So... Thomas Jefferson got a bargain on the Louisiana Purchase. He got the whole thing for only $15 million. That's a small price to pay. This had an immeasurable effect on the nation. As I said, it almost doubled its size. Uh, 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 Jefferson, uh, who had the, you know, sort of the, uh, the explorer's mentality himself, sent Lewis and Clark out uh, in 1805, uh, after 1805, 1806, 1807, to explore this new area, uh, and they come back with tales of tremendous natural beauty and also natural resources. Now, Combined with the British troops finally leaving the area east of the Mississippi, they finally are getting out uh, uh, in the first two decades of the, uh, 20th, of the 19th century. Uh, the Louisiana Purchase, combined with that, basically cleans out competing European powers in what is the United States, uh, 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 leaving uh, America the only power uh, uh, in that area. Uh, and set the stage, of course, for the United States to expand all the way to to the Pacific uh, Ocean, and we'll be talking about that as this course goes on. Now, Jefferson's goal was to establish, uh, uh, in the Louisiana Territory, a great empire of liberty. But this plan and this dream would only be partially realized. While Jefferson's independent farmers would pour into this area in the years following the Louisiana Purchase, some of them would bring their slaves with them. And by 1850, they would raise the issue that would force uh, the Civil War, eventually cause the Civil War, the issue of can slaves be brought into these territories. Now, history is filled with irony, and this is one of them. The author of the Declaration of Independence, himself a slaveholder, seeking an empire of liberty in the Louisiana Territory, instead gave America the land that will force it to come to grips with its ultimate moral contradiction, the institution of slavery. Now, the remainder of Thomas Jefferson's years as president, and he was president from 1801 to 1809, uh, were less successful. Uh, basically because of Great Britain. Now, Jefferson's problems and America's problems during these years uh, were an illustration of the limits of his vision for America of an agrarian rural republic. 
Now, during the early 1800s, Great Britain was involved in a bitter war with Napoleonic France and began to tighten the screws on American shipping and trade because they were afraid America would, you know, would trade with the French. Uh, Great Britain began raiding uh, American fleets. I mentioned the impressment issue earlier. This is what was going on. Uh, and Thomas Jefferson and America could do very little about these kinds of naval raids because Great Britain controlled the seas with its powerful navy. And also because America was reliant on Great Britain and Europe for its manufactured goods. It was still in that colonial relationship uh, 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 that I mentioned earlier. The United States still had not developed its own manufacturing industry, uh, uh, in large part because of the philosophy of Thomas Jefferson himself. Now, this miscalculation eventually pushed the United States into the War of 1812 with Great Britain. In 1806, Jefferson responded to British economic pressure with the Non-Importation Act, and the next year, 1807, with the Embargo Act, which totally cut off America uh, uh, from trade with Europe, Great Britain, France, any other European nation that was at war. And all, virtually all of Europe was at war. It cut off imports and exports to and from Europe. But this is almost akin to the idea of cutting off your nose to spite your face, because it hurt America much more than it did Great Britain. And Jefferson should have known that this would be the case, because Great Britain found other markets for its ma manufactured goods and other sources of raw materials. In America, especially in New England, commerce was destroyed with no markets. Eventually, the entire economic life of the nation was choked. By 1812, Thomas Jefferson's successor in the White House, James Madison, uh, who was the uh, president uh, between 1809 and 1817, uh, he was our smallest president at 5'4", and the only American president thus far who was smaller than me, uh, Madison really had no choice by 1812 then to declare war on Great Britain because our commerce was so choked off. He had to do something. Now, the War of 1812, uh, which lasted from 1812 until uh, 1815, uh, was a combination of tragedy and farce, including, among other things, the burning of the White House and the Capitol by the British uh, in 1814. They invaded and uh, took Washington. Uh, uh, there's the famous image of Dolly Madison, the uh, wife of James Madison, uh, taking the, uh, the portrait, the famous portrait of, uh, of George Washington by Gilbert Stuart. You've all seen it, uh, uh, even if you don't know you've seen it. Uh, taking it off the wall in the White House and saving it from the uh, flames also featured the composing of the Star-Spangled Banner uh, during the 1814 British siege of the city of Baltimore, uh, uh, written ironically by another slaveholder, Francis Scott Key. Uh, uh, the Star-Spangled Banner was a, a verse uh, set to the tune of a British drinking song. Uh, 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 a little more irony again, uh, uh, and no wonder it's such a bad song. Uh, 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 you know, uh, it's. Uh, uh, I, I always thought that the, our, our national anthem uh, uh, should be uh, "America the Beautiful," uh, but as sung by Ray Charles, only the Ray Charles version. Uh, uh, the War of 1812 also featured 
the uh, unsuccessful American invasion of Canada. Uh, uh, if any of you have ever gone to Niagara Falls, has anybody ever seen Niagara Falls? It's neat. You go, if you, it's, it's obviously, it's on the Canadian side. A short distance from uh, Niagara Falls is a, uh, a, a, a British or a Canadian military park uh, uh, which, uh, uh, which commemorates a battle in which the Canadians, helped by, you know, were then British subjects, fought off the American invaders. And it's funny to go to a British uh, uh, or a Canadian uh, park where it celebrates a victory over the Americans. Uh, uh, so that's, uh, but that's what, what went on. The Americans tried to invade Canada and take Canada, but were uh, unsuccessful. Uh, and uh, perhaps for the only time in the fractious history of Canada, they have a very fractious history also, uh, 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 it united that nation, uh, showing perhaps the only thing that, uh, that truly unites Canadians uh, is their dislike of the United States. The War of 1812 also featured the 1814 Hartford Convention, uh, uh, at which, a half a century before the South actually seceded, New England, of all places, threatened to secede from the United States over the War of 1812 because its trade was going to be uh, cut, was was being cut off by the war. Now, this Hartford Convention of 1814, and obviously uh, New England did not actually secede, had the effect of destroying the Federalist Party, which by 1814 had lost a number of presidential elections in a row uh, and, was, and, and, and was dying as a party anyway. But its opposition, the Federalist Party's opposition, or lukewarmness on the War of 1812, basically finished it off uh, uh, because you never want to be on the wrong side of a war that you're winning. Uh, uh, because you're, you, you look disloyal. And certainly we'll see that with the Democratic Party during uh, the Civil War. And finally, and I said that the War of 1812 was a combination of tragedy and farce, the ultimate farce, the January 1815 Battle of New Orleans, in which Andrew Jackson became famous by routing the invading Brit British, which came after the war ended because the Treaty of Ghent, G-H-E-N-T, in Belgium, uh, signed in December 1814, which ended the uh, War of 1812 between Great Britain and the United States. It was signed in December 1814, but word transportation and communication being what it was in 1814 and 1815, uh, it, the word of it came after the Battle of uh, uh, of New Orleans. So in a sense, it didn't count. It was almost like a, a football play that takes place after the whistle, uh, but it counts anyway. Now, in 1815, as the War of 1812 ended, uh, uh, with American borders basically the same uh, in 1815 as they were before the war started in 1812, which in a sense made it a war about nothing, uh, it was clear that to a large extent, Thomas Jefferson's agrarian vision for America had failed. It was America's reliance on Great Britain for manufactured goods, a byproduct of Thomas Jefferson's vision, that had forced it into the War of 1812 in the first place, a war it had almost lost. I mean, they did burn Washington. It was clear that if America were to survive, it would have to rectify this situation and become self-sufficient with its own domestic manufacturers and its own internal markets. In other words, instead of shipping products to Great Britain uh, uh, from their farms, 
it should ship them instead to American cities and towns and have the countryside, the rural areas in the United States, serve as the market for American manufactured goods that would be manufactured in American cities and not for British manufactured goods. In other words, there still would be sort of a colonial relationship between the countryside and the cities, but this time the cities would at least be in the United States. Now, this would not be an easy task to accomplish, but as it approached this challenge after 1815, the United States did have a number of advantages. First, it had a geographic advantage. It's geographic isolation from Europe. In a stroke of good fortune and good timing, and it's always better to be lucky than to be good, as they say, by 1815, there was finally peace in Europe for the first time in almost 20 years, reopening trade opportunities with Europe that had caused all the trouble for the United States for so long. So there was geographic isolation in the sense that they were not going to get invaded by Europeans anymore. There was also in America abundant natural resources, as Lewis and Clark had pointed out. There was abundant land. There were rivers for transportation. And there was the beginning of a technological communication and transportation revolution in the United States. In other words, the Industrial Revolution was starting in the United States even as early as 1815 and of course it would accelerate so that it would be easier to transport goods and easier to manufacture goods. So in 1815 the United States was on the verge of an elemental economic change which we will be talking about in future lectures. A change to a commercial society, to a market-based society, and this change would have huge political and social consequences in the years to come. How that elemental economic change would turn out, well, that's a subject for another day. But one thing is certain, that by 1815, the Jeffersonian dream of an agrarian republic had failed. America's future as a nation lay in cities and towns and in industry, commerce, and the market, as we will see in some future lectures. We'll talk about the United States between 1815 and 1828 next time.